0: it's very, very important to actually maintain what we have. So we have built our interstate system back in 1950s. We have been using it since then. Uh, we need to take good care of it if you want to be able to keep using it into the future as well. I think it's a more sustainable approach to invest in the time and effort to preserve and maintain things as they are than demolishing and rebuilding Indeed. them. So my research tries to answer that big problem of how are we going to be able to preserve our
1: infrastructure, specifically roads and bridges. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin.
2: And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today we have a friend and colleague, Mehmet Ozbek, who holds the Phelps Endowed Chair in the Department of Construction Management. Welcome, Mehmet. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, it's, it's our pleasure. We're looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Let, let me start with with the Phelps Chair. Tell, tell us, our audience, about that endowment and, and the opportunities and responsibilities that come with it. Oh okay. So you
0: start with the difficult question I guess. <laughs> uh so it's it's an endowment by uh late Joseph Phelps uh, who was uh a pioneer in the construction industry uh, who graduated from our program and uh then uh, started working in the Hansel Phelps Construction Company. He actually took it uh, to the next level before starting a second career, opening a winery in California. Oh, wow. And uh, he passed away in 2015, but uh, I believe a few years before then, he actually made this endowment to our department for a professor to be selected and, you know, carry the mission of, of that endowment, which is basically, as you mentioned, Matt, comes with a number of responsibilities beyond our, you know, regular duty and beyond that, regular teaching, research, and service. And I believe the biggest part of that responsibility is to be engaged with the construction industry Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in trying to come up with our research agenda as well as in serving our students.
2: Now, I'm interested in how that dovetails with your own sort of scholarly interests, right? So, you know, we were lucky enough to have you last spring at our, our College Research Day give a, a lightning talk. And when we say lightning talk for our listeners, I, I think we mean it right there. You have to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. And we were so intrigued by your presentation last year. So tell us a little bit about the work you presented at Research Day and, and your scholarly interest writ large. So when you think about yourself as a scholar, what, what big problems are? or or challenges do you pursue? Sure, so let me
0: first address the question on what I presented last year, because that's a new direction that I took uh, in my research recently, I would say in the last two to three years, and that is envisioning the future of the infrastructure. Uh, So I have been working with an organization by the name, American Society of Civil Engineers. And they have uh, developed a platform uh, working with the Hollywood Production Company, which is a virtual environment depicting a city 50 years from today, roughly, depicting a city in 2070. And I worked with this organization as well as the production company during the development of this platform to provide input as to what the future might look like. And we are not suggesting that uh, what that city depicts is exactly how the future will look like, but the whole whole point beyond behind that exercise was that we should start planning for the future now uh, as opposed to reacting our way uh, as we move forward so that was a very forward looking experience or exercise that we went through that platform in terms of my research so that deals with the preservation of the infrastructure uh, more specifically the transportation infrastructure more specifically roads and bridges. This falls under a broader domain of research called infrastructure asset management. And I'm sure you've heard the term asset management, but from a different perspective, from a financial assets perspective of individuals. In the context of infrastructure, we're looking at physical assets, basically. So I'll give you an example, uh, say from highways. Uh, So within the right of way fences, we have defined 40 or so different asset items that we need to take care of uh, starting with the fences themselves and then uh, lots of drainage related items ditches pipes under drains and whatnot the payment itself and lights traffic lights signs payment markings payment markers so on and so forth so I should joke every now and then that driving is not the same for me anymore because when I'm driving, I continue to look for these things and see, oh, are they in good condition? Do they need to be maintained? Do they need <laughs> to be improved and whatnot? But uh, so my research focus, so asset management or infrastructure asset management, in general looks at the overall life cycle of this infrastructure from design all the way to you know, design construction, maintenance, preservation, all the way to disposal or decommissioning. My research focused on the maintenance or the preservation aspect quite a bit. And it's not the most glamorous uh, part of infrastructure, if you will, if you think about it, you know, people take probably more pride in saying, I built that thing as opposed to, well, I've been maintaining that thing, right? Mm. So you can you can actually think about it from a, somebody running for the office perspective. I'm yet to hear somebody running for the office saying, I'm gonna maintain what we have, as opposed Mm. to I'm gonna be building new roads, new bridges, new structures, right? So it's not as glamorous, I would say, uh, but it's very, very important to actually maintain what we have. So we have built our interstate system back in 1950s. We have been using it since then. Uh, We need to take good care of it if you wanna be able to keep using it into the future as well. I think it's a more sustainable approach to invest in the time and effort to preserve and maintain things as they are than demolishing and rebuilding them. So my research tries to answer that big problem of how are we gonna be able to preserve our infrastructure, specifically roads and bridges.
2: Great, thanks so much for sharing. I I, I wanna follow a little bit on this, this casting our vision into the future notion because I find it fascinating, I think it's really cool. You know, we tend to slap a label onto new technologies smartphones, smart cars, et cetera, right? What's your sense about a a 50-year city in the future, smart infrastructure going going to look like? And we will interview you again in 50 years to see whether (laughs) these, I'm kidding, of (laughs) course. So given that you won't be able to do that,
0: Matt, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I can't say anything that I want, right? Yeah. So, so, so uh, I think in fifty years uh, we are gonna, I'll, you know, take the construction perspective first of all, just because you know that's that's what I do. I think we'll be living in cities where buildings are building themselves. Uh, so we are using a lot of robots, uh, drones, lots of three D printing, where we hardly ever see an actual construction worker out there and it, it has pros and cons sure. as everything that comes with the future we may perhaps achieve our vision of zero safety incidents in the future and even if there's a safety incident with a robot who cares right uh in the sense that if a robot gets damaged uh, or gets hurt uh but but uh at the same time obviously construction is a major driver of the economy uh and employment and what's going to happen all those jobs. And that's exactly the approach that we took with this platform where we are presenting these ideas, which are not all great in the sense that they're they're not going to resolve every issue out there, but these are the ideas that we can start thinking towards and planning, planning for. So that's, I think, one aspect of uh, what the infrastructure will look like. I also think in terms of transportation, we are going to hopefully see uh, less and less uh, disruption to traffic, uh, much in the way what we are seeing right now uh, with I twenty five. Right, sure. that lots of maintenance will be done again, uh, almost automatically. Uh, that's that's what we are guessing at least, uh, in the sense that either through robots that are working below ground or you know uh, self healing concrete, self healing asphalt uh, that kind of patches itself. So that's kind that's of cool. a, yeah, that, wow. that's kind of a crazy idea. And in terms of transportation itself, you're definitely envisioning a lot of you know, driverless cars, uh, drones and whatnot. So that's, that's again, uh, tots into the future. But the real deal is, if we see any of these <clears throat> ideas to be feasible, then we need to start planning for them
2: right now, mm-hmm. basically. So that's that's the idea. It's not going to just happen, right. right? Right. If I may press one step further, do you envision, and maybe I push this out to the next 100 years, a uh, transportation landscape that actually doesn't depend on roads? What, what I mean by this is, you, you know, this, you can... I'm thinking of the Jetsons. I'm, I'm dating myself here, right? This is a 50-year-old cartoon, but automobiles, personal transport devices that, in fact, don't take any wear and tear in the pavement because they don't need it. They're hovercrafts of some sort, right? So, have yeah. I lost my marbles? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely,
0: I think that's going to be the way to go in terms of transportation. And and you're right. We'll probably need less and less of a maintenance because of less and less use of roads in the way that at least we know them right now, Mm -hmm. uh, and more air-based transportation.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So there will be virtual highways in a sense, right? Because if we take every car in the United States and move it six, eight, ten feet off the ground, we still have traffic patterns to deal with. It's just in a different plane in some ways, right? (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And we are, you know, we have multiple lanes because we can't go vertical, yeah, right? So, yeah, absolutely.
2: My goodness. Fun to think about, isn't it? Yeah. There'll be toll roads <laughs> for the higher altitude. <laughs> exactly, right? Altitude, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Now, the natural question, and this is where we really have a lot of fun, is is talk to us about the pathway, your educational pathway, your family origins, again, that led you to the point where you're in a position to accept this incredible honor as, as the Phelps Chair.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, I'm originally from Turkey, and I lived there up until I was 22 years old. Okay. Uh, so got my bachelor's degree in civil engineering with a focus on construction engineering and management back there, and then moved to the United States to Virginia Tech. So uh, I'm a hockey ram or ram hockey, it depends on same the day. Same here, same here.
2: Uh, so, <laughs> uh,
0: and got my master's and doctorate degrees over there in civil engineering, again, with a focus on construction engineering and management. And I also had the pleasure of doing uh, one year of postdoc Uh, before coming to here uh, almost 15 years ago. uh, So I joined faculty here at CSU back in 2008. I was actually thinking 15 years ago, right around this time, I might have been on campus uh, for my interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's kind of how I came here. In terms of family, so I'm actually a third generation uh, student in my family. So I'm very fortunate in that sense. My paternal grandparents uh, went to college, uh, and I believe they were one of the first graduates of their respective programs uh, back then in Turkey. My parents did go to college. My sister, who is 10 years older than me, uh, also went to college. So that kind of set the stage for me. Uh, So I think college was the way to go. And another uh, thing uh, that helped me, if you will, make my decision was everybody that I know of in my family are civil engineers actually. So start with my granddad, my dad, my mom, my sister. Wow. And then that extended to extended families later on as well. So uh, my brother-in-law, my wife. Uh, so so uh, a family of civil engineers. So again, that kind of set a precedent sure. for me as well. So it was an easy decision to pursue civil engineering. I do remember my dad worked as a construction manager. So since I was probably five years old or so, he would take me to the sites uh, oh, and you know, I would just watch these equipment uh, and how awesome they were. And, you know, civil engineering, construction was almost a central theme at our dinner table conversations. So again, that was an easy decision and an easy path for me to take, I guess, to pursue civil engineering, to pursue college. And both my mom and sister went to the dark side, if you will, and pursued academia. So uh, that, I'm sure, affected me quite a bit in in my pursuit of uh, a doctoral degree. Uh, and here I am.
2: Now, uh, Virginia Tech was, was a, a preface to a postdoc. And then, of course, we were lucky enough to recruit you out here. But I want to talk a little bit about what you actually focused on for your dissertation. What What questions or projects were you pursuing as a doctoral student? I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was, no, uh, so I do. That's obviously something that a doctoral student will never forget, sure. right? Uh, having spent at least three to four years of their lives constantly working on one specific subject. So uh, that actually had something to do with what I described. Uh, so I worked on a project uh, funded by Virginia DOT, Department of Transportation, as well as NSF through my postdoc. And I actually, So it was interesting uh, as I was moving from my PhD to postdoc, my advisor gave me the opportunity to to write an NSF proposal Mm -hmm. saying that if it gets funded, you have a postdoc. And it did get funded. Uh, So it was my first and only NSF project that got funded. (laughs) So either I got the beginner's luck on that or... My proposal writing skills have significantly worsened <laughs> over the time. I'd like to believe it's the former because uh, I have pursued NSF since then you know, and haven't been uh, successful in that regard. But what we did, uh, both from my PhD and then the postdoc, was to help Virginia DOT figure out how they can best and maintain all these asset items that they have. So specifically, we looked at different counties uh, that Virginia had, and these different counties making different decisions as to how they're going to approach to this maintenance question. And comparing these counties, uh, I tried to identify the most efficient approaches to asset management, if you will, uh, so that other counties could learn from those. So In essence, my research both then and right now looks at decision-making because infrastructure systems or to be able to manage your assets, if you will, or if you wanna manage or maintain or preserve your assets, at any given time, you need to make a lot of decisions that really relate to three fundamental questions, actually. So what to maintain, when to maintain, and how to maintain. And if you had unlimited funding and budget, These questions will be very easy to answer, you know, maintain everything in the most expensive way possible (laughs) continuously, right? But that's not the world that we live in. So I'll give you an example from our state, Colorado, uh, and I'm going to talk about only one asset, which is bridges, okay? And remember how I said, said at the beginning, we have identified 40 or so different assets, right? So bridges are huge, obviously, and state of Colorado, has around 9,000 bridges. And I'll just use Colorado Department of Transportation as an example. They are responsible for managing or overseeing a portion of these bridges. So at any given time, they need to be able to, again, figure out in this network, large network of bridges, which ones they need to prioritize Mm. in terms of maintaining. uh, And when to do that? Should they do it now? Defer the maintenance? And how to do that in the sense that maybe there's a pothole, right? So should they do a band-aid approach and just fill that pothole or try to find the underlying cause and maybe really have a much more restorative approach? So the three rules of real estate, does anyone... Location, location, location. (laughs) So great. So the three big rules of transportation asset management or highway asset management is drainage, drainage, drainage. So Mm. potholes happen because we cannot drain the water off the road. So are we gonna just do the band-aid approach, as I was saying, or are we gonna uh, maybe look at the root cause and spend significantly more money to fix the drainage in in that area? So these are important decisions and these are very complex decisions. And these are actually driven by multiple parameters as well. So if I'm gonna select one bridge over the other one because I have only funding for one of those, right? How am I gonna make that decision? That's when multiple criteria come into the picture. Obviously, we're going to look at the traffic, uh, the area it serves, the amount of vehicles that go over that bridge, the climate that might be affecting that bridge, the current condition of that bridge versus the deterioration rate. So, so how how fast that bridge is deteriorating. So, these are very complex decisions. So, my research definitely incorporates that multi criteria decision making into making those decisions, basically. I also look at optimization. That's also what my PhD did. Optimization, in essence, has an objective and multiple constraints. And in this case, in the same example that I shared, the objective is maybe to improve the condition of the largest number of bridges, if you will, uh, or maintain them at a certain level, if you will. And the constraint will be the budget, right? So my PhD and everything that I have done since then really looked at this complex decision-making phenomenon, if you will, and uh, incorporated optimization, prioritization, multiple criteria decision-making and whatnot into the picture. One thing that I, or I should say, I don't want to get credit for that, but uh, I and my co-PIs have realized, which we should have realized this longer time ago, but we realized it fairly soon is traditionally and primarily when those decisions are made, people have prioritized economics. Right. In recent years, we have also seen environment being a concern. So maybe I want to fix, I'll keep on using my example of bridges, but again, you can extrapolate this idea to then maintaining 40 different asset items. It becomes a major, major problem. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should fix this bridge because without having this bridge in service, I'm having a long detour uh, of vehicles, which are going to then impact the carbon emissions. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one thing that hasn't been taken into consideration is the social equity or social impacts. Uh, So we have, if we define sustainability, you need to look at economics, environment, Uh, but social impact or social equity has been neglected. So a recent research project that I and my co-PIs have started working on was how do we incorporate social equity into this huge, complex decision-making problem as well? Because we have a lot of communities with underrepresented individuals, so should we really give some priority uh, maybe to the bridges that are within those communities? But even taking that to the next level, maybe it's going beyond just the road transportation the way that we know it, as you mentioned, Matt. But uh, can we develop more bike-friendly and pedestrian-friendly communities? Mm. You know, owning a car may not be a big deal or expense for us, but it is actually a big expense for those communities, Mm -hmm. right? Not just purchasing a car, but keeping that through the insurance and the maintenance and whatnot. So in the last year or so, uh, my research has taken a whole new direction where I'm not just crunching numbers, if you will, and doing all kinds of optimization and, you know, multi-characterial decision making. I'm really looking at this uh, social impact. I have started to look at this. I have barely scratched the surface on this because this is a very understudied uh, area of this field, I, I think. How we can incorporate that into decision making, because I think that's gonna that's important, that's gonna complicate decision making. Even incredibly more because we are putting the human element and the social aspects, a lot of qualitative things into this very quantitative framework, if you will. Uh, But that's very important.
2: I'll say. It's really interesting. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the transition from Virginia Tech and Postdocs to CSU. So... How did we get on your job hunting radar screen? So uh,
0: again, I'm trying to remember, this was 15, 16 years ago when I started job hunting, but there were a few schools uh, that I had heard about. I hadn't been to Fort Collins prior to that, but what I heard about CSU, specifically my department, was the incredible partnership it has with the industry. So that was one big driver. The other thing that I found to be interesting at the time was this was a standalone construction management program, as opposed to what I was used to. Sure. Was CM being a part of civil engineering, and yeah, that was my path, right? Uh, and I, when I learned about that, there's a standalone CM program with close to a thousand students at the undergraduate level. You know, that was an eye opener. So that definitely was one of the drivers for me to apply to CSU. And I should also say that of all the uh, universities that I have applied to and interviewed. And in, I felt that CSU was definitely the most accommodating to the idea of a dual hire. My wife was at the time just a semester behind me, basically. So she was in her last semester of, of her PhD. So she was also very much interested in academic positions. So CSU uh, pretty much had welcomed us with open arms saying that, yeah, we do understand the dual body problem or two body problem. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we do Value the fact that you know couples can bring a lot of uh, good stuff and diversity uh, to our university, and therefore, so that was another uh, thing going for for CSU. I also should say that I got somewhat lucky. Uh, I, I I mentioned my interview at the beginning that it was about fifteen years ago when I had this inter- when I had my interview with CSU. I remember, uh, so I came here and during my interview with with our dean of the college back then, Dean April Mason. So I tried to explain everything that I've been trying to tell you, obviously in a very non-technical way, as I'm trying to do here. I'm, I hope I'm successful. <laughs> if not, uh, please warn me. But I gave her an example, and in saying that infrastructure is very important, and have actually different types of infrastructure interact with each other. So I vividly remember giving her the example, I focus on the transportation infrastructure, roads and bridges, right? Uh, But that transportation infrastructure, more often than not, is also home to the power infrastructure. So if you have these lights and light poles, the electric power lines and whatnot. So I say if anything were to happen to a road, if a road gets damaged, potentially our power infrastructure might be affected too. And I told her you know, also you know, a road might get damaged because of the big pipes that are running beneath that, so here's another type of infrastructure, water infrastructure. Mm. So I gave her all this, and the next day I'm returning uh, to the airport for my flight out, went to the airport. I'm looking at the screens at the gate. It talks about a huge sinkhole, and maybe you would remember this map, which opened on I-25. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that thing call happened because of, uh, I believe a water main mm-hmm. that broke down, which then made the road collapse, right. which may or may not have affected the power infrastructure at the time, I don't recall. But, you know, I just pulled out my laptop and sent an email to Dean Mason <laughs> saying that, I promise I didn't make this uh, because this was the exact example that I gave, but this is exactly what I was talking about. So I don't know, maybe it was meant to be that I was able to even uh, <laughs> showcase. It was me. I To this date, I maintain my innocence. I didn't make that happen, <laughs> but that was exactly the example that I shared with uh, Dean Mason. So, wow.
2: So. Uh, you and your wife—did you come at the same time? You said you were separated by about a semester. A semester. Or so. We did come at the same time,
0: uh, but she started a semester later or after me because she had to wrap up her PhD. So she was here finalizing her dissertation when I started my full
2: semester here. So, so talk to us about uh, a day in the life, right, for you. Uh, uh, this could be collaborators that you're talking with, the, the new projects that you just mentioned. You know, student training opportunities, even you know the public facing interactions with our our construction colleagues, who are such great supporters for your department.
0: Sure. So, I guess from a research perspective, I live in week cycles, so I'll, I'll I'll talk about not from a day perspective, but from a week perspective. So. What we do, I'll take that last project as an example, as you mentioned, uh, for that project, which looks into how we incorporate social equity into transportation, asset management, decision making. So I and two other colleagues of mine, so we all are co-PIs on this project. We uh, meet with our uh, graduate student who's a PhD student, as well as we also work with an undergraduate student uh, on the, on this project, Uh, first thing on Mondays. uh, So 9 a.m. meeting, we have a standing meeting. And then we identify some tasks, uh, mainly for our students, but also for ourselves. And we try to hold each other accountable to those. And then uh, our goal is then to accomplish those tasks by by next week when we come back and then we do check-ins and whatnot. And from my perspective, I don't have a physical lab per se, I'm in front of the computer most of the time, crunching a lot of numbers, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned at the beginning. It reminds me of a funny story. Back at Regina Tech, my cubicle was right outside of the faculty offices. So any faculty going out of their office would see me as they are walking by. You know, it had its advantages in the sense that I had easy access to my advisor. In the same token, my advisor had easy access to me. (laughs) Uh, So there were times he wouldn't even bother to step out of his office. He would just yell my name uh, from his office saying, Mehmet, would you come here? I have a question or I need you to work on this kind of a thing. But there was one faculty who would usually leave around 6 p.m. and would see me in front of the computer and looking at the numbers. That has been my life, crunching numbers, right? And at the time, every single evening, he would tell me, Mehmet keep looking at the numbers they will change. So, you know, didn't did, <laughs> did, did didn't make too much sense of it until I finally did. It was a good good joke. Uh, so that's still <laughs> the same for me that I I crunch numbers, I'm looking at the numbers, I'm playing with the numbers. So that's uh I guess my my research life, I would say. Uh, and in terms of teaching, you know, I definitely had the pleasure uh, to teach uh, both undergraduate and graduate classes. And obviously you have different uh, approaches to to both, but I'm usually on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. Uh, So Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, I really spend a good amount of time in the morning to still, believe it or not, prep for my classes. Here Mm -hmm. I am in my 15th year teaching the same class for the 28th time at a row, you know, because mm-hmm. I teach the same class in different semesters as well. So that that's what happens. And in terms of, you mentioned working with our industry partners. So obviously that's, that's a big part uh, of what we do. I think any, anybody in the department uh, would tell you the same thing. But from my perspective, that has primarily been at least for the last two to three years as I've been working on this project, the Future World Vision Project with the American Society of Solar Engineers. So I work uh, with with that organization and I have mainly been a champion in trying to promote the platform and the ideas uh, behind that platform in multiple venues, which will include industry professionals. So I'm trying to sell the idea, if you will, to them as to how they can use it in their companies to train uh, their next generation of employees and how can actually do this as a means to you know, start as a company to really look into the future and that sort of stuff.
2: That's neat. Now, I want you to think about your legacy, your impact, aspirations you have as a teacher, mentor, collaborator cast a vision again for the next five or 10 years about it. Here, here's how I hope my impact is taken by others, uh, what my students might be doing, the, the kind of growth and projects that, that we're currently working on in terms of their potential impact. Sure.
0: I guess, again, from a research perspective, I want to be able to say that 10 years from today, that you know some of the tools or frameworks that I developed to help the decision makers are indeed being used by them. Especially again, this latest project excites me quite a bit, where these decision makers will have a completely different approach in making their decisions where they're also looking at you know social equity uh, and the impacts of their decisions on social equity. so that'd be I guess my legacy if, if that's the right term. in terms of my students, my graduate students, there are two things that I keep telling them: one is the importance of work ethic. Mm-hmm. And the other one is importance of communication. So I would like to think that I'm a hardworking individual, partly because I also think that that, working hard compensates for other shortcomings that a person may potentially have, right? So I always tell my students, uh, I don't need you to be extremely smart or intelligent. You need to be hardworking. Uh, So that's one thing that I try to really instill. And the other one is communication. I always tell them, I mention these weekly meetings, but I also tell them anytime you need any help or anytime you need to communicate with me because you're running into a problem and that happens fairly frequently during graduate school. Sure. Right? That's the definition of graduate school. <laughs> Roadblock, huge wall, brick wall, you need to find a way around it or just, you know, plow through it. But, you know, communicate with me. So, you know, those are the big ideas that I would like my students to to really have and carry forward. Now, at some point, so I'm currently merely an advisor. At some point, I want to become a grand advisor where, you know, one of my advisees will have their advisors, right? Uh, And hopefully they will, you know, carry on the same ideas because some of these ideas that that I have are basically passed to me by my advisor, right? So uh, that's an interesting relationship between advisors and advisees. And I think it's a, for the most part, lifelong relationship. So I definitely want to see that a big part of what they do.
2: Now you've got obviously a ton going on, but I'm curious about what occupies you and and your wife when you're not on campus and and staring at numbers and and mentoring students, et cetera. What, what do you look forward to in terms of, of fun things to do in Fort Collins? It's obviously, that you you love Fort Collins and it's hard not to. Great place. What do you do when you're not on campus?
0: So. I'll probably talk about this year because the previous two years, I don't even want to remember. But uh, so uh, this year, we finally uh, got our season passes for skiing. uh, And we are trying to help our eight-year-old learn how to ski. We actually started that process right before COVID hit. So that March, March 2020, uh, he tried his first skiing. He said, I love it. And I couldn't book the second trip. Sure, sure. Let's just put it that way. So. So this year we have been busy over the weekends trying to get him to start skiing and get us back to skiing. So that has been our main thing for for this year. Otherwise, obviously we enjoy everything Fort Collins has to offer in terms of our beautiful downtown, uh, all the places that we can visit in terms of different food options. During my interview, uh, I I don't remember who told this to me, but somebody told that Fort Collins uh, has the... Second largest number of restaurants per capita after I think San Francisco. So mm-hmm. I never researched this. I didn't need to because when I came here, I realized yeah, there are <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of restaurants. A, a, a large number of options here. So uh, you know we we like to uh, try those as much as we can. Uh, so I would say, you know, that's what we have been up to at least this year. You know, In addition to that, when we get a chance, we like to travel internationally. Sure. Uh, obviously, we have those international ties. Uh, we try to go back to Turkey at least once a year. Uh, we have uh, my sister-in-law living in London, so we like to visit her every now and oh, then so that uh, my son could, you know, play with his cousins. And, you know, along the way, we try to make a few stops in Europe if we can as well.
2: That's great. That's awesome. Istanbul has been on my bucket list for a long time. A beautiful city with a lot of history. Right? Yep. So, and it,
0: yes. it's one of those few cities which have that 24-7 uh, oh, right. lifestyle.
2: really. Right. So. <laughs> I can hardly wait. Yeah. I have to ask as a quick aside, uh, what's your favorite spot to ski? So right now it's Keystone. Okay.
0: Yeah. But partially because we feel it's more family friendly, okay. family mm-hmm. oriented. Prior to uh, our son was born, it was Breckenridge. So okay. it's funny how things change sure. you know, with <laughs> life,
2: obviously, but uh, right now it's Keystone. Nice. The beauty of Summit County is if you have a place or renting a place, you can get to multiple different, of course, depending on the pass you have, but right. it's a great opportunity. That's neat. Well, we have, we have two questions we want to wrap up with, and it's, it's related to the environment we find ourselves in here at CSU. So the first one is the colleges, College of Health and Human Sciences, this eclectic mix of different disciplines. And I'm interested in your reflections on, on what you like best about being an academic in the College of Health and Human Sciences. Other than the fact that we have our own very cool podcast.
0: So <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> and they didn't pay me for this, but uh, so so as, as you said, it's a mix of different units, and I think I like the fact that between this eclectic mix, as as you mentioned, Matt, we're able to actually touch the human life from multiple different aspects, right mm-hmm. from from designing and building the spaces that we live, you know, learn, work within all the way to our nutrition, mm-hmm. education, our health. So I think even though these are very different units, as you mentioned, I think the overarching theme is the human life mm-hmm. uh, and how between these different units we're able to touch on every single aspect of the human life. That's well
1: said. Very well said. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, we find ourselves embedded within an institution that, that holds out its commitment as a land grant very seriously. And so share some reflections about what it means to find yourself as a professional at a land-grant institution so i guess the, the amount of
0: coming to engagement is mind-blowing in my mm-hmm. opinion uh and i was also reflecting on my undergraduate experience uh where you know, i did have the opportunity to do a bunch of extracurricular activities but I don't think any of them really had that flavor of being engaged with the community and Mm. serving the community here i am looking in my own department but the same applies to i think all across csu where we have all these student organizations and clubs and they are putting the knowledge that they gain uh, through our education through this campus to work literally work by serving the communities by engaging with the communities So that has definitely been, I think, driven by uh, the fact that CSU is a land-grant university. So I actually find myself very fortunate to be a part of this university, mainly because of that, something that I missed out on when I was an undergrad, basically, that I can do and see every day here. And a great example that I think epitomizes that is CSU SPUR, uh, Mm -hmm. which I had the pleasure of visiting recently, and the amount of programs that they have for the community from, you know, hydrophonic farming to water treatment facilities to our own CM certificate program is just incredible, in my opinion. It's remarkable. Yeah. Yes.
1: So related to the numbers that you look at regularly and staring at the screen long enough, the numbers will change. How have you seen those numbers in practice? How Have you seen the research that you've done in real life making an impact, whether through sustainability, through those social efforts? What's one little vignette that you wouldn't mind sharing of how you've seen your research make an impact? A great question.
0: That's a great question. So since I talked about my PhD and how I looked at different counties within the state of Virginia and how they approach their decision-making and what they do uh, to be able to manage their inventory of assets, if you will. So what we ended up doing was identify the most efficient county And not for the sake of coming up with your top 10 best list, uh, but to then, you know, work with that county, uh, which was making its own decisions for the, you know, road network falling within that county, right, within the constraints of that county. And then work with that county to extract, you know, what do you do? What are some of the best practices? And we did that and we were able to actually then inform uh, other counties, look, these are some of the approaches that you can take when you start making decisions, which was well-received by those counties. And then they have since then adopted those practices to also improve their efficiency. So I want to give this example just because I talked about that during my PhD, but that's you know kind of the idea. Yes, you look at numbers, you crunch numbers, you run all these models. But the, at the end of the day, the goal is to, to come up with some practical solutions. So uh that I think I, I would give as the vignette as, as you asked for Everett.
1: That's great. Thank you. I really very we're much.
2: Well aligned with our land grant mission again. Yes, Absolutely. Right. We're an outward looking institution. Yep. It's great. Well thanks again for coming. Thank we really you. enjoyed it. Likewise, thank you so yes, much. Greatly appreciate <laughs> it. Good fun. Good fun. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters.
1: Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from Seasons 1, 2, and 3. And if you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.